I was mediating a process between the government of South Sudan and a senior rebel leader, and I was heavily, heavily pregnant. And I realized that it was a great point of leverage because when they behaved badly in the negotiations, I did threaten to go into labor right there in the room. From the Oslo Forum, welcome to the Mediator Studio, a podcast about peacemaking, bringing you stories from behind the scenes. I'm your host, Adam Cooper. Our guest today found herself fresh from university doing PR for a Maoist arm group And at the age of nine, she acquired a skill that helped establish peace in Kenya. Meredith Preston-McGee, Secretary General of the Global Centre for Pluralism, welcome to the Mediator Studio. Hi, Adam. It's great to be here. It's great to have you with us. Your 20-year career has taken you from Nagaland in eastern India to South Sudan, from Iraq to Nigeria, Liberia to Myanmar. But I want to begin by taking you back to your childhood in Western Canada. What motivated you to leave the country of your birth and become a mediator? Well, Adam, I think I really have to credit my parents with my um, early interest in travel. When I was about four and a half, they quit their jobs. They bought a bicycle and a tandem, which had to be specially fitted for my four and a half year old legs. And we set off on a cycling journey for 15 months around Europe, including across what is now the former Yugoslavia. I think it really helped remind me at a very, very early age, the boundaries of the rest of the world and where things are, and really just inculcated a love of travel and of difference from a very early age. Well, clearly that adventurous spirit stayed with you because your first job after university, amazingly, was in Nagaland in India, uh, where you worked with an armed group that was negotiating with the Indian government at the time. How did that come about? I was uh, given a youth international internship through the government of Canada, which is a really fantastic program that the government had then and has since renewed. The government didn't actually send me to support a Maoist armed group in the northeast of India. They'd actually sent me as an intern to do research on the rights of Indigenous children. And I was fortunate that my boss was an exceptional human rights activist from Nagaland. And I learned a lot about the forgotten conflict in Nagaland and through through Louis, uh, met the leaders of the Naga Armed Resistance, who were at the time in exile in Bangkok. They really took me under their wing. You know, the Naga are very cut off from the rest of the world. It is truly one of the world's forgotten conflicts. It was then, and, and I think still is now. And I think they were very keen to have someone, even someone young and inexperienced, to be helping them think through how they might actually come to a resolution of a conflict that was, even at that time, more than half a century in the in process. And what was that like, being taken under the wing of, of an R group, as you say? I mean, it felt surprisingly normal at the time. I was welcomed into their homes. Their wives were really kind to me. And in the midst of all of that, we would also really talk about the politics and the culture and what it was that they were trying to achieve. They asked me to join a delegation that was going to the UN Forum on Indigenous Populations, as it was known at the time. And they were going to be making a series of statements in the forum in Geneva and asked me to help them craft some of their communications. And so I found myself in Geneva. I was 
probably about 22, 23, helping them rewrite their speech that was going to be presented to the Assembly of Ambassadors there. Now, the Naga, you have to remember, were Maoists. And so they would begin most of their statements to the UN General Assembly and so forth, saying things like the running dogs of the Indian government. And I had to remind them that when they began a sentence that way, most likely the US ambassador was not going to be won over to their cause. They were also quite unfortunately titled the National Socialist Council of Nagaland, and in several of their communiques had been advocating for the final solution. And this was entirely innocent, but of course had the worst connotations you can imagine. And so a lot of my time in Geneva with them was actually just rewriting a lot of their well-meaning Maoist discourse into something that was a little bit more palatable for Western ears. And from that forgotten conflict, you ended up working for the UN in a number of hotspots around the world. What did that experience with the United Nations teach you? Um, You know, UN security regulations are designed to keep people safe. They're not designed necessarily to make it easy for you to really spend time with different actors. And where I feel like relationships got built in a really durable way that stood me in really good stead in the longer term, that was often done late at night. It was often done walking a really long distance from village to village, sorting out problems together, breaking bread together. And often UN regulations, particularly in the later days of the peacekeeping mission, when they fly you in and out for a couple of hours, really didn't allow for those sorts of relationships to be built. I felt like I had to really fight against some of that bureaucracy to get the time that I needed in the field. It was incredibly valuable, and and I'm really grateful that I was able to make that happen. Meredith, from the UN, you came to the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue. And you'll remember that's where we first met as colleagues. Your first big assignment was in Kenya, where you worked for the late UN Secretary General Kofi Annan. It was 2007, um, and Kenya was on the edge of political chaos as President Kibaki and the opposition leader, Raila Odinga, disputed the results of elections. Tell me what was happening where you were. I was up in the Rift Valley, which is the central part of Kenya, where a lot of the violence became particularly extreme. And I was up there over the Christmas holidays with my family. We were staying in a in a cottage. We were listening to the election results come in. And they were coming in sort of as, you know, at a regular pace, you'd get an update every hour. And then an hour went by and two, and, and we didn't have any updates. And then Rilo Diga's lead started to evaporate. And a friend of mine in, in Nairobi, who's very well plugged in, called me and he said, something's funny, you need to get home. And so we hopped in the car and drove. It's about a a sort of an hour and 45 minute drive back to Nairobi, which we managed to do in considerably less time. There was not a car on the road. I think we saw one Matatu in the entire time that we were driving back. Friends of ours were driving back about two hours later, hit riots in every town. It was that quick that the violence erupted and then continued to spiral after that. What we really noticed that was incredibly striking, because, you know, Nairobi had been a really safe spot, was all of a sudden driving across town was becoming dangerous. Six or seven of us who'd worked on humanitarian operations in South Sudan and Somalia and different places came together and essentially overnight set up this displaced camp with exceptional, exceptional support and volunteerism from Kenyans who just showed up at the showgrounds knowing people needed help and bringing food, bringing clothing, blankets, and just more than a, a week after the uh, after the election results came out, how rapidly Kenya had descended into a conflict setting as, as we had been more accustomed to seeing in South Sudan and Somalia. And amidst that chaos, Kofi Annan flies in to try to fix it and and mediate between the opposition and the government. 
What was your role working with him? So myself and another colleague from Geneva were essentially seconded to act as staffers to Mr. Anand from the beginning of the talks. When the talks commenced, they were held in the Serena Hotel in Nairobi. And I was sort of in the room taking internal notes for us at the table with Mr. Anand and, and Grasa Michelle and President Benjamin Kappa, who made up the panel. That's the panel of eminent African personalities and the parties from government and the opposition. And fairly soon into the process, Mr. Anand decided that he really felt that one of the main ways to begin to halt the violence and begin to build confidence for the Kenyan people in the peace process was to show momentum, to get peace agreements out and signed really, really quickly. In comparison to a lot of agreements, which take months and months and months to be developed, and then you have a single signing ceremony, we were trying to sign agreements every few days when a piece of an agreement was ready. And very early on, Anan was looking for somebody to synthesize the discussions into a workable agreement. And we had note takers from the UN who were taking taking almost Hansard level notes, but they were focused on, on taking the notes themselves, right? They weren't necessarily able to do that synthesization. And so I started pulling some things together. I have to credit my mother on this point. When I was about nine years old, a young girl in, in Western Canada, my mother decided that I needed to learn how to type. And for 45 minutes every day in the beautiful Okanagan sunshine, she would keep me inside at an old Texas Instruments 99 computer with a giant cartridge in the, in the front. And she made me do my typing lessons. And I cursed her and I cried and screamed and did all the things a nine-year-old will do. But at later times, what this meant was that I'm an incredibly fast typist and I'm able to type and synthesize information really, really quickly. And it meant that in the first days of the of the agreement, I started pulling together some of the text for Mr. Anan, and he became really enamored with this idea that we could come up with real-time agreements, essentially, as the parties were discussing. And I would read out paragraphs, and they would correct me and say, no, we want the emphasis on this rather than that, and, and sort of collectively in the room for several of these agreements, we would simply collectively draft the opposition, the government, and the panel themselves. So thanks to my mum, I got to play a much larger role in drafting peace agreements than I, and I probably ever expected. As time went on, Meredith, your role in these negotiations evolved, and these were negotiations that were incredibly difficult. Tell us about how that final deal was made in the last stage. So just to back up a bit, there were four parts to the peace process. And really, the beginning was trying to quell the violence, was trying to calm the situation down. Once we got through those parts of the agreement, we had to get to the thorniest piece of it, which was how do you share power when we could not reliably determine who'd won the election? And this became the toughest piece of the negotiations. And Mr. Anand tried many, many things to break the deadlock between the parties on these points. He flew us off to an undisclosed location for several days to try to sequester the negotiating teams away from their other advisors and away from the Kenyan public. They took us out to this exceptional lodge out in Savo. The Kenyan Air Force was guarding the airspace above us so that we couldn't be disturbed by any journalists with deep enough pockets to try and, to try and fly over and, and listen in. He flew out a, a very senior German minister to talk to them about coalitions and so forth, but they were still deadlocked. Mr. Anand very cleverly had set up the peace process so that he wasn't negotiating with the president and the leader of the opposition. He was negotiating with their delegations. And so when their delegations were really unable to come to an agreement, he halted those talks and he said, I'm going directly to your bosses. And so on the 28th of February, 
we had a draft agreement that still had a series of core outstanding pieces. And we got up early that morning and Mr. Anand looked at me with a twinkle in his eye. And I don't know how he knew this because I hadn't told him it was my birthday. And he said, we're going to get you a peace agreement for your birthday. I said, okay, sir, let's go and do it. So off we went to the office of the president where President Kabaki and Raila Odinga had agreed to meet with President Benjamin Kappa, former president of Tanzania, as well as the sitting president of Tanzania, President Jakaya Kukwete, and Mr. Anan. So it was the five men in a room. And they had a draft of the agreement and they began to work through it, just the five of them. Now, the delegations, of course, were sitting in an antechamber outside of the president's office, just sort of surreptitiously trying to listen at the door as, as you would. And I was in the antechamber with them with my laptop with the draft agreement on it, of course. And every two hours or so, the meeting went on for about six or seven hours. Every two hours or so, Mr. Anand would come out of the out of the room. He would beckon to me. He and I would go into a separate room. He would give me the changes. I would input them into a new version of the agreement on my computer. We'd print it out on a printer that was connected only to my computer. I would hand him the new drafts. In he would go and I would lock up my computer again. You can imagine the tension in this, in this antechamber. We had all of these sort of senior ministers who had been part of the negotiating teams on both sides would be circling me and my computer. And at one point I, I opened my computer to write my father an email, just sort of detailing him the events of the day. And I would have ministers sort of looking over my shoulder, seeing whether or not I was surreptitiously opening the agreement and whether or not they might get a glimpse. At the end of it, we had an agreement that had been reviewed by um, President Kabaki and, and Rilo Dinga. And at the end of that, we zoomed back to the Serena Hotel, where a group of advisors were collected. We drafted a preamble to the core piece of the agreement, and then were sent back to the president's office at Harambe House to sign the agreement. So we're standing on the dais. This at the time was covered on, on CNN and others. There's several flags up there, all of the various heads of state, former heads of state, and the great and the good from the Kenyan government and opposition were all on the dais with me clutching this dossier with the agreements to my chest to hand over to Mr. Anand just at the right time in order for us to secure the signing. At the end of it, we signed the agreements, obviously. We went back to the Serena Hotel, and I don't know where he finds time for these things, but um, Mr. Anand had arranged cake and champagne. And so we toasted the agreement and toasted to my birthday, which I thought was just a really, a really lovely touch at the end of what had been one of the most dramatic days in my very young career at the time. Meredith, I want to talk about another country where you've been very involved, South Sudan, uh, which has probably found it much harder to find a path to peace than Kenya. How did you get started there? In South Sudan, during the, the conflict itself, one of the things, and, and you see this in a lot of different conflict settings, is that the South Sudanese, prior to their independence, were essentially, they were the opposition, they were the rebel group. And Adam, I'm sure you found this in, in your work, that it's almost always easier to get access to the opposition and to rebels in that moment, because they're looking for support, they're looking for allies, they're looking for ways that they can increase their own leverage on the government that they're going to be uh, fighting against or advocating against. And so we were able to develop some really deep personal relationships with a lot of the South Sudanese leaders while they were in the opposition as well. And a lot of that had to do not just with the programs we were running as the UN or, or various NGOs, but also some very personal things, you know, helping people getting manifested onto a flight or, or catching a flight after their flight had been rained out, helping people with personal issues, helping the 
them sort of understand what the international community might be thinking, trying to really understand them as South Sudanese and, and what they were fighting for, what they were really striving for as a country. And I think that that was really appreciated over the years. It's interesting because I think for many of our listeners, they might find it hard to imagine exactly how you go about building trust with rebel leaders. How do you find that human interaction with them? Talk us through that a little, if you don't mind. Well, one of the things that I was very fortunate to do when I was with the UN in Sudan and South Sudan was work for the Disarmament, Demobilization and Reintegration Program, which, as you well know, programs to try and demobilize and reintegrate soldiers in conflict and post-conflict settings have a really troubled track record. However, I was really fortunate to work on a piece of the program around women associated with armed forces and groups and with disabled soldiers. That meant that I got to spend a lot of time in the barracks with soldiers, with disabled soldiers, with women who'd been associated with the forces, with women soldiers themselves, and hear about the way that the conflict had impacted them. And I feel like a lot of that time just listening not necessarily being able to promise anything, but really having a lot of respect for the stories that people were sharing and really trying to then do something to honor the fact that they'd taken the time to share their stories and their pain with you. And I think that a lot of the commanders that I spent a lot of time with at that time really felt that that showed a level of respect for their troops and for their society and, and for their culture itself. I would have to say also that I was very fortunate in the in the DDR commission, especially in South Sudan, there were several really senior women who were involved in that commission, who were both incredibly important, powerful women in their own right in South Sudanese politics, and also happened to be married to some of the senior leaders on that side. So it, it meant that I was able to develop some personal relationships with a lot of these women who, who I still count as friends today. I think that made a huge difference. And in learning about these communities, in traveling around so much, were you ever worried for your own personal safety? It sounds like they took incredibly good care of you while you were in their territories. Absolutely. And I, I know that this is different now, but I know that during the period that I was living in South Sudan in particular, I felt like I was really, really well taken care of. There was a particularly severe breakdown of the peace agreement in Malakal in 2006. It was the first major breach of the comprehensive peace, peace agreement, and the two armies really stood off against one another in the town. The fighting was horrendous. There were 450 people killed in about three days. I had bullet holes in in the back of my office. We were all sheltering in place. We had to evacuate all of the internationals from the town. And I would have commanders from both sides be getting in touch and essentially saying, we're awfully sorry. We don't want to hurt you. We're sorry you're in the way, but we're after those other guys. We were absolutely not the target. Is it fair to say, Meredith, that despite your efforts and that of many others, that mediation hasn't been terribly successful? I think in South Sudan, the picture is less optimistic. The peace talks have more recently resulted in a transitional government. But I feel like we haven't fully cracked how South Sudanese of all different communities and political persuasions really live together peacefully in the future. The level of trauma in South Sudan is extraordinarily, extraordinarily high. And that's not just among 
so-called sort of ordinary people, but even among the leaders themselves. And I feel like finding their way to a place where they can govern accountably and manage their differences peacefully is still a really long way off. There's a lot of criticism that we have focused too much on elite negotiations in South Sudan, that it's really been about bringing the two big men together. And if the two big men can be in a room or in a government together, then everything else will automatically flow from that. And I don't believe that it's as simple as that, although it's a it's a piece of it. I think we haven't quite figured out how to bring South Sudanese communities writ large back together to feel like there's a collective South Sudanese project that goes beyond a lot of the fear and trauma and grievance that has really dominated for the last several decades. And on moving past that model of the two big men, as you put it, and on your role as a mediator who happens to be a woman, you know, you've written a lot about the importance of being aware of gender dynamics. How has that played out in your career? First of all, I feel quite fortunate. There's been very few cases where I have felt that being a woman has been held against me in a prejudicial sense. And I know that's not the case for a lot of women. So I I feel like I've been quite fortunate in that regard. I feel as I was mentioning earlier about building relationships, I feel that as a woman, it has been in some ways easier to develop a more personal relationship, both with men and women in positions of authority in the different places that I've worked. And so I feel like that has stood me in good stead. I have to tell you a funny story, though, when I I was mediating a process between the government of South Sudan and a senior rebel leader at the time in 2011, and I was heavily, heavily pregnant. And uh, my son was born in December 2011, and we were holding these negotiations in November. This rebel commander, we got out of the bush, and and he came to to Kenya. We had him sort of hiding in a safe house. And then the government of South Sudan came, and they had two senior negotiators who'd come leading the government delegation, one of whom I knew very well. He's now the head of national security for the government. And he said to me at at a dinner that we were having that night before the talks were about to start, he said, you know, many people have tried to get us to the table. And they failed every time. And many men have asked, and you, a pregnant woman, got us to say yes. This is just amazing to me. And but he, but you know, he said it with a twinkle in his eye. And I realized that it was a great point of leverage as well, because when they behaved badly in the negotiations the next few days, which of course they did from time to time, I did threaten to go into labor right there in the room to see if I could if I could hustle them along. I'm not sure it necessarily worked, but it was certainly a point of levity within within the talks. Shamelessly using it for your own advantage and the cause of peace, of course. Absolutely. All in all for a good cause. So looking back on more than 20 years as a mediator, what advice would you pass on to the next generation of peacemakers? You know, when I started out in my career, a colleague of my mother's gave me one of the best pieces of advice ever, which was go and take the toughest job you can find in the toughest place where you can find it and really spend the time. Because if you don't understand who communities are and why they make the decisions that they make, you won't make good decisions if you're ever back in a headquarters position. And secondly, you won't have credibility for really understanding these sorts of places unless you've really been there with the people and stuck it out with them when things got difficult. Try to really understand why people are fighting, what 
is important to them, what sort of solutions exist in their own traditions, in their own cultures, in their own societies, and really learn from that and respect that and respect that now, but then respect that later on as a mediator. I think one of the reasons I'm still so inspired by the Sudanese example, I'm talking about Northern Sudan now, over the last year is been because it has been Sudanese-led and it's been a national process on national terms. And they're making extraordinary strides because they're doing it their way. And I think more and more as mediators, we need to dig deep into the solutions that are often to be found within those societies themselves. Well, at a time when we're all looking for a little inspiration and positivity in our lives, Meredith, that's an optimistic note to end on. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us. It's such a pleasure. Thanks, Adam. That was Meredith Preston-McGee in the Mediator Studio, an Oslo Forum podcast brought to you by the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue and the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and do recommend it to a friend. You can find other episodes at osloforum.org where you can read more about the forum itself. And you can continue the conversation with me on Twitter at AdamTalksPeace. Next time, I'll be joined in the Mediator studio by another inspirational woman who's worked to bring peace to South Sudan, Hannah Tete. But for now, that's all from me, Adam Cooper. Thank you for listening.